I know sometimes that we cry out like the psalmist, why do the righteous suffer and the evil prosper? There's coming a time when God is going to make all things new and He will preserve us in that righteousness and in the glory of Christ for all eternity. Are you looking for meaning or a word from God that's relevant to your life? Are you searching for a better understanding of who God is? Well, you're in the right place. You found the Gary Talks About God podcast. This is a weekly podcast that comes to you from the pulpit of Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church in Germantown, North Carolina. The podcast is hosted by Red Bank Senior Pastor Gary Sanders. Now let's get ready to take that walk through God's Word with our pastor, teacher, and friend. Hey, he's that guy we call Gary. If you have your Bibles, First uh, Peter 5 is where we will be this morning, finishing up Peter's first letter to the elect exiles. And as he finishes, as most of the letters in the New Testament do, he, he finishes with a series of commands of how believers uh, should behave. We need some uh, reminders sometime, especially as he is writing to, as we have seen, the elect exiles, those who are probably exiled physically from their homes into different lands, but also those who are, we, we have seen over and over, theological exiles. Their faith in Jesus Christ has made them different from the rest of society, and it has brought persecution and suffering into their lives. And, and we have looked at how that has worked out, and Peter's just continued encouragement to them on how to live as they are suffering. And so Peter ends the letter with some more commands, and at the same time he recognizes that commands are hard to obey sometimes. So what he does is after he gives us the commands, he, he kind of dangles a carrot out in front of us by reminding us of some promises that God has given to us and leaves with us so that not only can we fulfill the commands that he has given us, but we can continue to live under the persecution or the suffering that we are going through. So let's begin in verse 6 and read down to the end of 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter writes, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Thus, Sylvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So this morning, I want you, if you will, I want you to notice three commands that Peter gives us. Three particular commands that Peter gives to the believers. And the first one is this. God commands His people to live in contented obedience. God commands His people to live in contented obedience. And we see this where Peter starts off with that word humble. 
He says, humble yourselves. Humble literally means to make low. Now, if, if you are made low, if you humble yourself, if you make yourself low, there is the flip side, which means that someone is over you. And Peter wants us to know that the someone who is over us is God himself. Right? He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. So we, we make ourselves low because God is above us and he is in control. Now, when Peter writes that, do you notice that it's an imperative for us to do it? Right? We have read in the Bible several places that, that God will humble people, right? We know the great story of Nebuchadnezzar, where Nebuchadnezzar exalts himself you know, to this position of he thinks he is king, and God comes in, and God's authority, God humbles him, right? But here the command is different, is it not? It doesn't say that God is going to humble you. The command is for you to humble yourself, What is Peter driving at? Peter is reminding us that God is in control. He is actively in control. However, we play a role in this too, and that we need to make sure that we make ourselves low under the obedience of God in His hand. That we don't resist God. That we don't get all proud and say, God, I don't want to do this. I don't want to obey you. I don't want to listen. I don't want to endure the suffering. It's me. I'm not going to humble myself. And man, we all know that when we do that, we put ourselves in a very precarious position because we know at that point then that God will humble us. And usually if we get to that point and God steps in and intervenes and humbles us, it's a little more difficult than if we would have just humbled ourselves in the beginning. So Peter instructs us to humble ourselves even though our faith in Jesus may be causing people to ridicule or persecute us. Right? It's hard to humble yourselves anyway. It's hard to be humble. I mean, mean, maybe y'all don't struggle with that. I do. It's, It's hard to be humble because you like to think that you're always right. You're always in control. You're always got a command of the situation. If everybody would just do it my way, right? Right? There's seven billion of us who thinks if everybody would just do it my way, everything would... That's that's a little prideful if you think you're smarter than six, seven billion people. Let's say there's seven billion and one. That way I don't have to do hard math. Right? It's hard. Especially... If humbling yourself, in the context of 1 Peter, means that we've got to humble ourselves even though we are undergoing persecution. Nobody then wants to humble yourself because what is causing us the persecution, we would rather throw off what is happening. We'd rather not endure it. But when we humble ourselves especially as we, are, we suffer for the faith or we are per- persecuted for the faith, what we are able to do is to accept whatever occurs in our lives without shaking our fist at God, without blaming Him, without lashing out at the people who are causing us to, the pain. We're able to live through it. 
Why? Because we've already recognized that suffering is in God's will. That God is able to use that. It doesn't mean that it's not difficult. It doesn't mean that it's not hard. It doesn't mean that the other person isn't being evil to you. But what it means is God who is in charge over everything, and it says right here again, His hand, it's under His mighty hand, then you can go through that without becoming bitter, without becoming angry, without losing your testimony. But it starts when you humble yourself and you make yourself low. Then Peter says this. He says, you do that and you live through the persecution and you live through the suffering and you stay in that that contented obedience to God's command to humble yourself that there's going to come a day where he's going to reach down. And again, think of the imagery. It says that the proper times he may exalt you. Exalt means to be lifted up. Peter says, you humble yourself, you make yourself low, and there's going to come a day where God is going to reach down, pick you up, and he is going to exalt you for your faith. There is coming a time when you will be vindicated for your faith. If you're going through suffering and persecution and difficult times and somebody is making fun of you for being a believer, it's hard to think that there's coming a time when your faith will be vindicated. Especially if you don't see it happen on this earth. So when is this future time? Well, the future time is coming. We've seen this in Revelation over and over. right? That the future time when we are exalted, the proper time that He may exalt us, it may happen, but we know ultimately it's going to happen when Jesus returns and establishes kingdom. That's when we're going to be exalted and vindicated and lifted up for our faith. So Peter says, look, live in contented obedience to God by humbling yourself, knowing that one day He is going to exalt you. At the same time, we are told that God commands us to live in confident devotion. Right? Our, our exaltation is going to be a future event, but that doesn't mean that God has left us without support. He says, live in confident devotion to me. How do we live in confident devotion to God? Well, one of the ways we do it in verse 7 it says, casting all your anxieties on him. All of them. Because he cares for you. Now, again, Peter is talking about the anxieties that are brought on from your faith in Jesus Christ, from maybe being exiled from your family or shunned in the marketplace. The ridicule, the mocking, loss of family, friends, job. Maybe in the extreme case, the loss of life. We also know this morning that life brings anxiety, does it not? Right. I mean, just living this life brings anxiety. Saw it firsthand last week. Right, That forecast on Tuesday... And Wednesday, or, or when it, I mean, we were going to get slammed. Million people in North Carolina with, with, without power. Be prepared to be without power for a couple days. You know, go buy everything you need to make French toast. Bread, eggs, and milk. Right? 
And if you were like me, you got up Thursday morning, you flipped on the news, and you were, you were looking at that forecast. You walked out about 10 or 10.30, and you started to see the ice in the tops of the trees, and you're going, uh, I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't know. Some of your power went off that day, I know, for a little bit, and the anxiety ratcheted up because we saw what's happening in Texas, right? I, I mean, nothing we could do about it. We couldn't control it. That was just a weather event coming into our life and bringing anxiety into our lives, right? Our health creates anxiety. Our financial situation creates anxiety. Interpersonal relationships create anxiety. There is no lack of things in life that can make you anxious, so what are we supposed to do about it? Right? Peter tells us. He says, you cast your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Now, I think Peter used the word cast on purpose. Right? I, I'm not a fisherman. Don't pretend. I don't like it. I don't find it peaceful, relaxing, or enjoying in any way, shape, or form. If you do, great. I don't. But I do know this about fishing. When you cast the lure, you typically don't drop it right beside you. Right? I mean, if you're at the end of the pier, you want to get it out there into the ocean. Peter, as a fisherman, would take his net and cast it out over the side of the boat away from the boat. It's not that we're going to take our anxieties. Here's what most people do with anxieties. Right? They just... Right here. Just, I'm, I'm just going to drop it right here. Why? Because it's really convenient if it's right here to pick it back up. We don't want to throw it too far away from us. But here Peter is saying, no, 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 that's not what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to cast it. You're supposed to throw it a long way away from you so you can't pick it up later. Because you've thrown it to God who says, give it to me why? Because God can take care of it. Was there a thing you could do last week about the weather? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. When we lived in Moscow, and I, I'm not going to get the story correct because I haven't thought about this in years until just now. Uh, we lived there when Vladimir Putin was whatever he was, um, ruler for life. And one of the things that they, were stalk, they, they wanted to talk about doing was changing the weather in Moscow. <laughs> that they wanted to start kind of seeding the clouds, and I can't remember if it was to keep it from snowing or something. It, it was really preposterous. Like somehow if you just flew above the clouds and dropped stuff in the clouds, you could impact the weather. We can't. There was nothing you could do last week to change the weather coming. What could you do? You could change your anxiety. You could change whether or not you are anxious about it. doesn't mean you don't prepare. right? We're called to be prudent. But you could change the way you felt about it. And the way you changed that was because you cast all your cares on God. Why? Why? Because He cares for you. He wants to know what is going on in your life. He doesn't want you to be anxious. 
because he knows and you and I know that if you live in a constant state of anxiousness, you cannot seek the kingdom of God. You cannot seek his righteousness. You cannot live in confident devotion to him if all you are concerned about is what is happening on around you and what might happen and what might happen and what might happen and might happen and might happen. You can't do it because your mind is so preoccupied with all the what ifs. He says, cast your anxiety on me. This is what Jesus says in Mark 4.19. Anxiety for oneself and striving to secure one's own life. Whoops, that's not what he says. That's the quote afterwards that I had. My fault. That was bad Bible notation in my sermon. So let me turn to Mark 4.19. I'm not anxious though. Mark 4.19, here we go, sorry. Talking about the parable of the sower, and he's explaining it. And he says, And others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other great things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfaithful. Do you hear all that? that that's the anxiousness in there. Everything that could happen in the world comes up and chokes them out, and they can't hear the word. And the same thing is true for a believer. If we let everything in the world come in and choke us out, we can't live in confident devotion for God. So when we cast all our anxieties onto Him, what He is doing is He is lifting it from us. Right? The quote that I was going to read is this, Worry, anxiety for oneself, and striving to secure one's own life is lifted from those who are called to faith. Doesn't that sound freeing? I mean, doesn't it just sound freeing that, that, that God takes that from us? Again, because He cares for us. He is not a distant God who does not care about His people. He is just the opposite. He is a loving, caring God who is intimately aware of what you are going through. And He says, cast your anxieties on Me and I will take care of them for you. But then His Word this morning informs us and commands us to live in spiritual awareness. God commands His people to live in spiritual awareness. Right? We're in a spiritual battle. We are. And as you look in these verses, you kind of note a little bit of progression, right? The first one is there, there's persecution from without. We've got to humble ourselves because we're, there are people out there who are, who are persecuting us. And then there's anxiety from within, right? We can make ourselves anxious and, and not seek His kingdom. Then he says, but there's another realm. There's, there's a spiritual realm that we live in, that we're part of, and there's a warfare going on there as well. We might be able to see the persecution here much easier than the persecution in the spiritual realm or the warfare that's going on, but it's still there. And he says, for you to be able to see this and for you to be aware of it, you've got to be sober-minded. Again, being able to contain the full faculties of your mind. Because if you're not sober-minded, if your mind has been clouded, or if your mind has, has been um, 
if you've put, and again, the idea is if you are, are consumed too much of a substance that has impaired your ability to think, you've been clouded, then you can't be watchful. You, you, you just can't. So Peter says, you've you got to be sober-minded. You've got to have a clear mind so that you can be watchful. And you have to watch because there's an adversary out there who is even more dangerous than those who are persecuting you. And the one who is out there is the ultimate enemy of the gospel, the enemy of God, and your enemy as well. And he says right here, you got to resist him, the devil, the, the adversary, Satan. He is out there looking to devour you. And Peter calls him a lion. Look at what he says. He says, he prowls around like a roaring lion. 99.9% of the time when I go to the zoo, the lions are asleep and laying down. Right? There's been very few times where I've ever seen, it, it could be a stuffed lion for all I know. Because there have been very few times where I've been at the zoo where I've seen that lion actually do anything other than just lie around. Right? However, there's been one, maybe two times in all the years I've been to the zoo where I've heard the lion roar. And the most amazing thing about that roar is I wasn't at the lion's pen when he roared. Right? But you could still hear it. I mean, it fills the entire zoo, it seems like. And the roar is so loud, it feels like it just rattles your bones. And it really is kind of fear-inducing. Because at that moment, you want to make sure that that lion is behind that wall on the other side of the moat where he can't get out. Because it sounds like if he could, he's coming after you. Right? Peter says the, the lion roars. And he roars as Satan in this text because he's attempting to induce fear in the sheep. Right? He roars mockery. He roars loss of status. He roars loss of influence. He roars persecution. He roars futility. He roars all of this at the sheep with the hope that the fear induced by the roar will cause the believer to stumble or deny their faith so that when, he, when they do that, what happens? He then devours them. Do you see that the roar doesn't devour? The roar is to cause you to doubt, to fear, so that in the fear of the roar, you make a mistake that will cost you your witness, that will cost you your faith. Because it's at that point then that He leaps into battle and that He will devour you. And he has devoured so many believers through time, has he not? Because they've given into the fear. And then when they give in, what has happened? They've been assimilated back into the world. Right? They've been taken back into the evil, wicked ways. Basically told the world that their faith was for naught. 
Now, I know as, as we are reading this verse and thinking about this, I know that y'all are already one step ahead of me. I know that this question has already popped up in your mind. And you're going, Gary, but I see a tension here. Didn't, haven't we been looking that persecution and difficulties is, is a part of, of God's will? I mean, isn't that what, what's happening? Chapter 4 ends with talking about God's judgment on His house, where he, judgment will begin basically separating out the faithful from those who are faithless. And now Peter writes that it's the work of Satan. How, how do we understand that tension, that mystery? Well, one, we know this morning that he may be the devil, but he's God's devil. There is nothing that he can do that is outside the authority and control of God. But secondly, we know that God uses the roars of Satan, the threat of persecution, the threat of loss of status, the, the, the roar of, of futility, whatever he roars at you, that God uses that as an ability and an opportunity for you to prove that you really belong to God, that, that you're really His. And this pattern is not new. right? You can go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, right? where, where Satan enters into the Garden of Eden in the form of the snake, and he roars, if we want to keep the, the, the analogy of the roaring lion this morning, he roars when he says, you'll be like God. He roars when he says, did God really say and in that moment, Adam and Eve were presented with both a challenge and an opportunity. The challenge was to withstand the roar. The opportunity was to confirm their faith. Right? Same thing today. Same thing today. Peter writes to us and goes, look, his tactics hasn't changed. The challenge and the opportunity are still there. So when Satan comes in and he roars, you as a believer have in front of you a challenge to withstand the roar and the opportunity to stand firm in your faith. And we're able to stand firm in our faith because of the power of Jesus Christ. We know that through His power, we can resist the roar. But we need to be sober-minded and aware that as long as we are on this life, that we're going to be in a battle. And you wouldn't take a physical battle lightly. You wouldn't take a war lightly. You do not need to take your spiritual battle lightly either. And since this sounds kind of daunting, Peter reminds us of some specific promises that God has given us. Right, The first one, he says, God has promised to save His people. God promises to save His people. This is so much, so important to us because it reminds us of how much God cares for us. It reminds us that He cares for us so much that He saved us. That He sent Jesus Christ and through His life, death, burial, and resurrection, we can be saved. And Peter here kind of tells us that God will do that and he uses these, these four words. He says that God Himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And taken together, the totality of those four words point to the fact and remind us that God saves His children. Right? He's going to restore, meaning one day He is going to make the world right. 
We've talked about this before. Suffering, while it is in the world, was not part of the original created order. And when you go to Revelation, the end of Revelation, you'll see it will not be part of the final created order either. He's going to restore everything. He's going to make everything right. He confirms you. He makes you stable, not to be tossed around, but being able to stand resolutely in your faith. He's going to strengthen you. God Himself will strengthen you. Why? Because we don't have the strength in and of ourselves to withstand. We can't do it. Going back to the lion analogy, I, I really don't know if you've just got to be incredibly brave or incredibly stupid to be a lion tamer. Right? I don't know how all those years of going to the circus, a lion never ate one of the guys in the, the, the cage. But I'm betting, by and large, that if you jumped into a ring or you jumped into the pen at the zoo with a lion, you would not win because you don't have the strength to do it. We're not going to win this battle on our own either. But God is going to strengthen us so that we can stand. And then it says He's going to establish us. Right? Peter's talked about we are a spiritual house. He's establishing us where? We are established firmly on the foundation of Jesus Christ. On this rock I will build my house, and the gates of hell shall not prevail. The foundation will never be moved. And as a believer, if we are firmly established on the foundation of Jesus Christ, we will not be moved either. Because God saves His people. Where Satan is looking to devour and kill and maim and torment, God is looking to care, love, sustain, and take care of. He's going to save us. At the same time, He promises to preserve us as well. It says that He has called us and it talks about suffered for a little while. The, the God of all grace called you to His eternal glory. To Him be dominion forever and ever. Peter, again, takes the word glory and he points to us and, and uses it as encouragement for believers that there's coming a time when we will see what God has ultimately called us to. I mean, He's called us to salvation. We, we can live that now in this life, but there's something better, and that is His eternal glory. We will be preserved for all eternity to bask in the glory of Jesus Christ. The glory that was achieved through His sufferings, through His death, and through His resurrection. And it will be on full display for us to see forever and ever and ever. Yet we can, we can live in that glory now is what Peter is saying because even though life does not seem fair, even though life may have bring anxious moments in here, it's just but a little time compared, right? Just a, it's just a, a little time compared to the glory that awaits us, to the glory of God being revealed for us. You know, I know sometimes that we cry out like the psalmist, why do the righteous suffer and the evil prosper? There's coming a time when God is going to make all things new and He will preserve us in that righteousness and in the glory of Christ for all eternity. And it's going to be so fantastic that the trials of this world will seem like nothing. 
But that's the mentality we need to live with now and not later. And to make sure that we understand that, Peter finally tells us that God gives grace to His people. It says, the God of all grace. God is the only source of grace. He really is. There, there is. there is no other source. And as the source of grace, He is the only one that can extend it to His people as well. The sufferings you go through are intense, but God's grace is greater. The anxieties you face are real, but God's grace is greater. The difficulties may be numerous, but God's grace is limitless. The roar of Satan may sound frightening, but the reassuring that God will give you grace takes away that fear. And God's going to give us His grace for all eternity because everything on this world is fleeting. But God's grace, His eternal glory, the God of all grace will give it to you over and over and over for all eternity. But you can stand in that grace now. You can experience it now. As we study through 1 Peter, and as we come to an end, he talks about a roaring lion, but I don't want to end with that. I want to end with another lion that we see in the Bible. When you go to Revelation 5, we are taken up to the throne room of God. And we're confronted with a lot of dismay because there's no one worthy to open the scroll. And there's weeping and there's crying until what? The lion from the tribe of Judah emerges worthy to open the scroll. Now for a name that may be so familiar with us, it's the only place in Scripture where Jesus is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. There are other hints and allusions to it throughout God's Word, but it's the only place He is specifically called that. First Peter, we read about someone who's pretending to be a lion. He's not the true lion. He's an imposter. And the lion in Peter is looking to use his power and ferocity to scare you so that he may devour you. But the one true lion of the Bible, Jesus Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judea, is still using his power and his strength to save you. Which lion this morning are you going to turn to? You've been listening to the Gary Talks About God podcast. Are you looking for a church? Well, Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church is a community of believers who exist to glorify God and see transform lives through the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can find us on the web at www.redbankmbc.com. Also, come visit us on Sunday at 8104 Red Bank Road in Germantown, North Carolina. Did you like this podcast? We put one out each and every week, so don't forget to subscribe. We hope this has been a blessing to you, and we thank you for listening.